Uh, good morning. It's, it's good to see you all this morning. My name is Amy Winkle, for those of you who I haven't met before. Um, I am the administrative pastor at Trinity, and I'm so thankful to be with you here this morning. It's been a couple of months since I've been on the north side, so I'm glad to, to meet with you all again. Actually, the room looks different than it did the last time I was here. We were that way. Yeah, so I walked in. I was like, oh, this is different, but, um, but praise the Lord because um, we're able to gather more together now um, and not be so limited, right, in how many people can be in the room, and so we just thank the Lord for um, how we're finding some reprieve from COVID, thank, thank goodness. So um, I pray that you're all well this morning, and I look forward to opening the Word together. We're going to be in the book of Hebrews this morning. Um, so our reading this morning from Hebrews 10 um, is where we're going to be. So for those of y'all who know anything about me, um, I'm an Old Testament nerd. So um, when I have a chance to talk about the Old Testament and Jesus together, it's a great day. So um, I look forward to, to speaking in the Word um, and looking at the Word together. So um, we can do a little bit of background on the book of Hebrews. So there's not a whole lot known about like who wrote the book um, and exactly what the context was, but from the text itself, we can see that it's probably written to Jewish Christians because there's a lot of Old Testament that's kind of pulled into it. Um, and it's probably written before the destruction of the temple um, in 70 AD. And the, the seems like that the main point of the book of Hebrews, what the writer's really trying to drive home is really encourage these Christians um, to continue in their faith in Jesus, even though things in their world are, are really um, confusing and challenging and pretty difficult. There's conflict with Rome that's happening. There's conflict happening among Christians and Jews. Um, and if these are Jews, uh, people who grew up as Jews who are now following Jesus, you can imagine maybe some of the pressure that they're feeling, like if they've kind of changed, um, you know, they're, they're reoriented their life around this life of Jesus and are trying to figure out now what does life look like for me? Who am I? Um, having identity, like identity questions. And when things get hard, it's easy for us to want to just revert back to what we knew before, right? I mean, I think we can all um, understand that. But the challenge with, in the book of Hebrews and what the writer's trying to tell them is to, that, that he wants them to keep going, um, to not give up. Because the reality is, is there's this deeper reality in Jesus than the things that they're able to see now. And this is the thing that the book of Hebrews keeps pounding on over and over and over again is this idea of the things that are unseen, these unseen things that are, that are even more true than what they can actually see with their own eyes. And so in uh, Hebrews 11.1, 1, it talks about the faith is the assurance of things hoped for and the conviction of things that are unseen, that there's this sense of um, this reality that's, that's bigger than what we can actually see right now. And so when we get to chapter 9, what happens is this, um, this sense of the earthly and the, and the heavenlies, that there's this earthly reality like in the temple, like they can see the temple, right, what's happening, the sacrifices that are happening there. But really what's happening is the tabernacle on earth is pointing to this heavenly realm, um, to what, what's happening there. And Jesus himself is pointing them to this heavenly realm, to this real thing that has these deeper implications for what's really true and that there's more than what is seen. And so I think this is one of the things that makes the, Hebrew, the book of Hebrews relevant for us um, today. Is that it's really easy for us to look at the state of, of our world today, right? And it's hard to, to be hopeful. Um, we can, we can kind of even make us feel cynical um, about faith in general. Because when we look around and see even the divisions within our own world and within our, in the own, our own church even, um, to say among Christians ourselves, to say like, where is God in the midst of this? 
this particular moment that we're living through that seems to be so wrought with conflict. Like, where is God in this? I think is a, a question that we're all asking. And so I think the writer of Hebrews is reminding us in our day, in this time, of a deeper reality, this reality that we can't see, but one that is more real than what is seen. That there are things that are happening in the heavenly realms and that God is working all things together for good. So if there's anything that Hebrews would say to us today, I think it's to not lose heart, but to keep going, to keep trusting that God has a way forward. And so that's kind of the backdrop um, for, our, for our text today, which is in chapter 10. And so when we get to this part of the book of Hebrews, the, the Hebrew um, writer is talking a lot about the sacrificial system. Now for us in 2021 in Atlanta, Georgia, sacrificial system doesn't make a whole lot of sense, right? Actually, it's kind of a little, seems sort of inhumane and gross, right? You know, there's blood, there's animals, there's like random stuff that's happening. Um, but this was a very real part of their world, and so, um, and, and especially if they're Jewish Christians, this is a huge part of their identity. And so what we see the, the writer doing is making connections between what happened in the tabernacle with what happened through Jesus and his sacrifice, and even alluding back to the Exodus and when the sacrificial system was set up um, through Moses and through and Israel in the wilderness. Because what the tabernacle stood for was a place where the presence of God could really dwell among his people. And so we think about the full story of God, right? So we get in Genesis 1 and 2, we're, we're in, um, in the garden, we're communing with God, life is good, right? Sin hasn't entered the world yet, and so there's this unfettered access between God and people. And it only takes till we get to Genesis 3, so we make it two chapters in, and then everything falls apart, right, with sin entering the world. And what we see happening then is, the, is Adam and Eve being cast out of the garden and the gate being closed, and their access to God and God's presence is now um, not available like it was before. But the story of the Bible is God saying, how, are we gonna, how am I gonna reinstitute relationship? How am I gonna come toward people and, and be able to commune with them again? That's the whole story of our Bibles. And so it starts before we ever get to Jesus. It starts um, in the Old Testament with Abraham, God calling Abraham and saying, I'm gonna make you into a people. And then that great people ends up going into Egypt, into slavery, and God brings them out of slavery um, with Moses into the wilderness. And while they're in the wilderness, God says, We're gonna, I want you to build a tabernacle. And the cool thing about the tabernacle is it actually moved with the people, right? It, it, was, it, was, it wasn't stationary. They were moving and it moved with them so that God's presence could go with them. And so it was God's way of saying, even though we're separated by sin, I'm gonna come, to you, come as close as I can to you and dwell among you. And we're gonna do sacrifices as a way to cleanse the people so that God's presence could live among them. And so there's a sense of God being with them and yet still separated because the way that the, the tabernacle worked was that only the priest could go into the Holy of Holies every day and make sacrifices. But then there was a big curtain and behind that curtain was the Holy of Holies where the presence of God lived and only the high priest could go in that, that space only once a year. And so even though God was, was close, he still was not, uh, he still, there was still a sense of separation because of sin. So God getting as close as he can and yet still being somewhat separated. And so Hebrews is calling their attention to this reality of Israel's life with God. And then what he does is he puts Jesus right in the middle of it because Jesus is gonna take this reality 
even further. And so when we get to the New Testament and to, to John chapter one, what we see is I'm talking about the word of God taking on flesh and dwelling among them, literally tabernacling. That's what that word means in John, is that, um, that the word became flesh and tabernacled among them. So instead of this need for a tabernacle, what we have now is Jesus is God's presence dwelling among us. And so for the writer of Hebrews, he's making this connection as well, saying Jesus is now the tabernacle. And he's not only the tabernacle, he's also the priest. And he's not just the priest, now he's also the sacrifice as well. And so we see Jesus kind of coming in and taking the place of um, this whole system that had been set up. And so our, our passage for today starts in verse 11. And it says this, And every priest stands day after day at his service, offering again and again the same sacrifices that can never take away sins. But when Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God and since then has been waiting until his enemies would be made his footstool for his feet. And so we see this contrast and imagery here. We see the priests who are continually doing sacrifices day after day after day um, and, and kind of like they have to do the same thing, go through the same rituals day after day. But when Jesus comes, he makes one sacrifice with his own life, one time, and then sits down at the right hand of God and is waiting. And so there's a sense of finality here that the writer is pointing to. The reality is that, um, that is that he only had to do it once, that Jesus is able to sit down because the work is already done. It's already finished, as Jesus said, on the cross. And so because of this, Hebrews goes on to say that the, there's this covenant between us and God that has been written on our hearts. It's no longer out there, but now it lives within us. It's not this thing out there, um, but it, it is an eternal reality. And so that's where I can get my identity from, not from necessarily this tabernacle that's external to me or this law that's external to me, but this thing that lives within me, that Jesus that lives within me, that is my reality now. And that our sins are remembered no more. So this chasm has been overcome, has been dealt with. That gap between us and God has been closed through Jesus. And now we live in this new reality. This reality of being forgiven, of being free. And so I wonder what it would look like for us to live into that truth, into that freedom what would it mean for you and for me to live as free people? To know that the brokenness and the sin in me, in you, does not have the final word. But instead, it's Jesus who made sacrifice and sat down at the right hand of God. That's the final word. That the brokenness and sin that's been done against you, been done against me, is not able to just hang over us, to have control and power over us, but instead it's Jesus who has the final word. That the brokenness and sin of this world that we grieve over doesn't have the final say, but instead it's Jesus who sits at the right hand of God who gets the final word. Jesus said, I'm going to take all that is not right upon myself once and for all. And then he sat down and said, it's done. Forgiveness has come. I once heard someone say that forgiveness is like death. That the death of what we, like the, what we thought was gonna happen or, or what we expected or what we wanted. There's this sense of like having to kind of name what those things are. 
and then let them die for freedom to come and for new life to be possible. And it seems like in some ways this is what happened with God too. Like there was this, um, this, this reality that God lived in with us and, and in the garden, right? That he's kind of having to lay down in Jesus. And there ha- like a death has to come so something new can be birthed out of it so that new life can come. This forgiveness that we need to be able to dwell in God's presence. This forgiveness that clears the way for new things. So I think that's what's happening here when we talk about the death of this and the sacrifice. It's like this, something has to die for new life to come forward. And so what does that mean for us? What is Jesus' sacrifice? Jesus sitting down at the right hand of the Father and calling it done. What does that mean for us? What does that look like? What does that bring into our reality that we can grasp hold of? When we look at verse 19 and following it, the, the writer says this, Therefore, my friends... Since we have confidence to enter the sanctuary by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that he opened for us through the curtain, that is, through his flesh. And since we have a great priest over the house of God, let us approach with a true heart and full assurance of faith with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our body washed with pure water. Let us hold fast to the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who has promised is faithful." So do you see the change of posture here that this reality creates in us? This confidence to enter into God's presence. We don't have to be afraid. We can go boldly into the presence of the Lord because the curtain, which is his flesh, has been torn in two. That curtain that lived between the people and God's presence is no longer there because of what Jesus has done, because he sits at the right hand of the Father. That full assurance of faith that we're able to have to know that, that he who promised is faithful to bring things about and holding fast without wavering. And so I wonder today what this reality would look like for us. I wonder for you, like where, where do you feel like you need confidence to enter into God's presence? Are there places where you feel a sense of restraint or feel unworthy to enter into his sanctuary? Are there areas of unbelief that you're grappling with, God's intention toward you? You're not sure how God will respond to you. I want us to think about these things as we come um, forward later for communion. When we get to be reminded week after week of of Jesus' sacrifice and we partake of his body and blood, I invite you to think about your own sin, your own brokenness, and to offer it to Jesus as a way of acknowledging it, like it's, it's true, it's real. And so we offer it to Jesus and we grieve it. And in so doing, we can believe that, that Jesus um, can die so that new life can come, that he has died so new life can come. And so then, then our sin can also die so a new life can come forward. And so it's that new reality, right? That deeper reality, that even though I, I know if I can see my brokenness, I can believe that there's a way forward. I invite you also to think about the sins committed against you, the brokenness and hurt in relationships around you. We, can we acknowledge those things as real and putting them before Jesus to grieve them and to let them die so that new life can come? I think about for myself, like the, 
the brokenness that I see around me and the, the relationships that are hard and that are difficult and the things that I need to name. But can I trust in the thing that I can't see yet, which is healing that can come, that it's not the end of the story yet, that Jesus still gets to have the final word, that he doesn't get to, that sin and brokenness doesn't get to say what's gonna happen at the end, but Jesus gets to say what that will look like. So believing in the things that are unseen, what does that look like for you today? The things that you've kind of given up hope on, you know? Like when it feels like this, that situation just seems beyond hope. Is it worth bringing it to Jesus again and trusting that there is a way forward? Because he who has promised is faithful. It's Jesus who gets the final word. And it's his desire to make all things right again, even when our world doesn't look that way. And so that's what we get to live into, get, get to live into that hope of the things that are, that are not seen. We get to be people who testify and witness to those things, the things that are yet unseen, and to call those reality, to say we know that our God is up to something even when we can't see it, and that there is a way forward. In Jesus' name, amen. So let's pray together and have a moment of silence. And I just, um, I, I invite you to sit with these things, these places where it might feel like there's no hope, there's no way forward, or it's really hard to see you right now. Are you able to, to trust God another time? Let's go before Jesus and put those things before him now. We thank you, Lord, for the hope that we have in you. We thank you, Jesus, that you've made a way forward. We thank you, Lord, that you don't want to leave us where we are, but that you want to continue to reveal yourself, your truth, your reality to us. So give us hearts to see you, Jesus. Give us hearts to believe. We believe in you, Jesus, and we ask you to help our unbelief. We thank you, Jesus, for dying for us, being raised again, and that you sit at the right hand of the Father and say it's done. And so we say with you today, Jesus, we believe you and we trust you. In Jesus' name, amen.